Welcome into another episode of Real Pod Wednesdays. Dan Hope joined remotely by Colin Haas Hill once again. Uh, lots to talk about this week. Got a lot of great listener questions from you guys, so we're going to hit on a bunch of different topics here over the next hour or two, however long we go here. Uh, but we'll start with uh, our State of a Position series that we've been doing here uh, throughout the past couple months. And, and starting first, uh, you know, we've gone through the offense, we've gone through most of the defense, but I think we're now at the point where it's probably the biggest question mark of the entire team, and that being the secondary. And we're going to split this up into two groups, as Colin's also doing in his articles for the site. Uh, so starting with the cornerback position this week, and you know a lot of moving parts here. Of course, last year Ohio State was fantastic at corner with Jeff Okuda, Damon Arnett, and Sean Wade manning the free positions. And really, Ohio State had three cornerbacks on the field on just about every play last season. But now, Okuda and Arnett, they were both first-round picks there in the NFL. And Sean Wade, who was fantastic last year at the slot cornerback position, certainly has the potential to be one of the best cornerbacks in the country. But now, he's moving to that outside cornerback position, uh, playing a different role alongside uh, an otherwise inexperienced group of cornerbacks. Yeah, I think it's interesting when we go through the state of position series and we get a sort of a good deep look at, at every single position on both sides of the ball. On offense, we spent sort of a decent amount of time talking about what each position will look like in future seasons and whatnot. But I think on defense and, and specifically when we get to the defensive backfield, there's going to be such a you know such an emphasis by, by us on this on this upcoming season because. They're replacing a ton, and like you said, the talent that they've got uh, that that they that they'll have to replace is immense. And even Sean Wade, I, I think it's I think it's fascinating um, that that he's moving to the outside, which I think that we both knew was going to happen. You know, when he decided to come back, and I think that surprised a lot of people, including me. I expected him to leave for the NFL, but I think that you know him moving to the outside is fascinating because you know on one hand, you know, Sean Wade is a great player. Um, I expect him to be a first-round pick. Um, I'll be interested to see how they use him because, the other hand, uh, you know, we haven't seen him in this position yet. Like, is he Jeff Okuda? Are we 100% sure it's Jeff Okuda? I think he's great. I really do. I just wonder if he's, you know, gonna going to be the best defensive back in college football, which, you know, which when you lose Chase Young, Jeff Okuda, Damon Arnett, um, Devon Hamilton, Malik Harrison, all these guys... Um, you need stars, and I think on defense you want Sean Wade to be that star, that cornerstone of the defense. And I'm interested to see if he can be that guy that that you know Ohio State hopes that he is. Yeah, you said, are we 100 percent sure if he's Jeff Okuda? I'm definitely not 100 percent sure he's Jeff Okuda. <laughs> I I think he's a really good player. I think he could absolutely be an All-American this year. I think uh, he's very likely to be a first-round NFL draft pick a year from now because I think there's a chance he would have been even if he went this year. So I, I think he's a fantastic player. Uh, having him back is absolutely enormous for his defense. Cause I, if, if they didn't have Sean Wade back, I mean, I, I'm concerned about the secondary as it is, but if they didn't have him back, I, to me that would be a glaring weakness. So They would have had to hit the graduate transfer uh, market. The, Absolutely, absolutely, because they would have been they would have been so inexperienced there uh, that, that I think that it would have been a real problem. So uh, having Sean Wade back, 
is huge, but it, it is. It's a it's a new position, and I don't think there's a guarantee that you know he's. You know, do I think he's going to be great there? Do I think he's going to be one of the best cornerbacks in the country? Yeah, but it, until we actually see it, I mean, I, I think you know he. We saw him play outside cornerback probably ten or fifteen snaps last year, so it, it's not a role that he's played much. So I, I think he certainly has the talent to do it, uh, and I think it. You know, it's certainly what he wants to do because I, he wants to show that versatility to improve his NFL draft stock. For next year, but there is a little bit of a risk element of it in terms of if you were just setting your your defense uh, for what's best for the upcoming season, you know, disregarding Sean Wade's NFL goals, which you can't do in college football. But in one element, you know, there, there, there'd be a sense in keeping Sean Wade in that slot role that we know he is so good at. But by moving him to the outside, you you end up with a secondary where you really don't have anybody returning in the same role, and so you've got uncertainty at every spot. Yeah, I think that's the case. Um, when you know when when I think about what John Wade can be, I think about what he can be in the college football playoff because I think that that's where cornerbacks and whatnot make their make their biggest impact. Um, when they're going against the Trevor Lawrence's of the world, when you're going against Clemson's wide receivers, LSU last year, their wide receivers had Ohio State face them. I do think that that's where the money's made when it comes to guys like, you know, Sean Wade. You know, Dan, when, when you think about the rest of the cornerbacks, they're in an interesting spot where I think that some people are fairly optimistic, but we really haven't seen anyone else, anyone else, play the kind of roles that they're going to be needed um, to, to fill this season. What is your level of concern outside of Sean Wade? Well, I, it, it's definitely a significant level of concern because, you know, to me, the secondary is one of those positions that's really high up on the list of if you have a weakness in that area, it's going to get exposed. I mean, I think we saw that two years ago uh, when, you know, there were, there were parts there that were just not fitting together in that secondary uh, and, and it was a big part of a problem uh, for a defense that really struggled. So uh, I, I think it's a tough position because I think last year, Ohio State went through a year that it could just take its secondary for granted because those four starters, uh, including Jordan Fuller at safety, they were all just so rock solid all year long that you didn't have to worry about them. This year, I don't know if that's going to be the case, but I, I do think there is reason for optimism, and I think, you know, to me that really starts with that third-year group of guys because I think Seven Banks, Cameron Brown, Tyreek Johnson, you know, those are three really talented guys, and I think, you know, Johnson was the highest recruiter of those guys, but I think Banks and Brown are two guys who we've heard a lot of good things about over their first two years at Ohio State, and, and, and you get the impression that these are guys that could potentially be on the cusp of becoming stars. Yeah, I do think that they're got they're you know they're guys who we've heard a lot about since they've been at Ohio State. Like we talk about sometimes how we gauge what a player's doing in practice based on how often their names come up in interviews with other guys, and their names came up a lot in the past couple of seasons. I mean, Seven Banks, I, I'll still. I'll, 
I'll, I still remember when Greg Schiano had mentioned him as you know Ohio State's next great cornerback, and that was back when you know Ohio State was playing in the Rose Bowl against USC, and that feels like 75 years ago. Um, and then you have Cam Brown, who's out there saying he's the fastest cornerback or defensive back in college football. And you know he told me in the Big Ten championship locker room he ran a four, he clocked a four two. And I don't know if that's true, but I do know he's super fast. And I think that those guys have really high ceilings. And I think the tough thing is, especially right now, when we haven't seen them really at all since March, when they've only had three practices together as a team, and this completely unconventional offseason has sort of messed things up, I think it's hard to evaluate them and just hard to know what you're going to get. Like, on one hand, yeah, I see the potential. But on the other hand, I really have no idea. I feel I, I feel like I have less idea about this than most other positions. Just how far along are they? Well, the tough thing is we don't even know who's going to line up where. We don't even yeah. know who the slot cornerbacks are going to be. We don't even know if Ohio State's going to continue to use the same kind of defense it did last year. I mean, I think there's this assumption that because it worked so well last year that Ohio State's going to continue to use three cornerbacks in its base defense, but maybe we see more two safety looks this year. So there's a lot of moving parts. Honestly, Ohio State probably doesn't even know exactly itself what it's going to look like because it only had free practices. Because Kerry Combs is a new defensive coordinator, his first year back as secondary coach, he's still got to work through these things. So I think, you know, whenever his team's able to get back to start practicing and going through preseason camp, you know, that that's going to be a really, really important. I mean, maybe for this position, maybe more than any other, it's going to be really, really important to take advantage of whatever time Ohio State has leading up to the season be, because there's so much inexperience there and still so many potentially moving parts. Yeah, I think that the slot cornerback thing is one of my top three biggest um, interests to follow throughout preseason camp provided that we have it, knock on wood real quick. Um, and and the reason why, thank you, the reason why is I think that you know, you're know you able to get away with certain things when you have a guy like Sean Wade in the slot. You're able to cover certain guys that I think have burned Ohio State in the past and have been really difficult to, to deal with. And when you don't know who that guy is, I think that it's especially challenging when you have a new safety um you don't have jordan fuller anymore when you don't have a defensive line that has chase young on it like i think there's a lot that that not only is there pressure to follow two first round cornerbacks and sean wade whoever gets in the slot i think there's pressure because everywhere else is a little bit weaker and if and and you have to rise to the challenge and i think that that maybe more so than anything else is the thing that i think is a little bit worrisome about this group is it's so inexperienced and they're going to be relied upon in a way that, you know, even Jeff Okuda, Damon Arnett, and Sean Wade, maybe sometimes last year weren't always because Ohio State, you know, they had Chase, Chase Young running off the edge. And, you know, <laughs> things change when offenses have to account for him. Yeah, and I think it's important to recognize that if Ohio State is going to continue to use the same defense that it did last year, that that slot cornerback position, that's not a number three cornerback. That guy is is just as important as the outside guys. And and the reason they played Sean Wade there wasn't necessarily that he was third in line behind Okuda and Arnett, but it was because 
they thought he particularly was a really good fit for that slot position. So they've got to figure out who that guy is, and, and well, I'm yeah. I'm Dan, really I, not I, sure who that guy is. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, if if you didn't promise to Sean Wade that you'd move him to the outside and Sean Wade decided to come back, like, I'm pretty sure that Sean Wade would be the slot cornerback this year. That's like, what I, don't, I, I don't, would do. I mean, yeah. if I'm being honest, that's what I would do because I've at least seen – in to some extent, you know, in you know, fill in duty and, and second team duty, you know, we we've seen Seven Banks play outside. We've seen Cam Brown play outside, but we really haven't seen any of these other guys play in the slide. Marcus Williamson has a little bit and he's the guy that I look at as probably the favorite to start in the slot, but it's it's kind of tentative there, and I think that's probably uh, still up for grabs. So yeah, I mean to be honest, like if if I was just setting it based on you know what I think is best for the team this year, I would probably put Sean Wade in the slot because I know how good he is at that position. Yeah, and yet that's not going to happen at least full time just because when Sean Wade comes back, it's with the understanding that he's moving to the outside. So when we think about who's going to be the nickelback, who will be that slot cornerback, like my my. I did, in my article, put Marcus Williamson there, and I did that without any degree of confidence. But I'll say this. like I don't think that there's a, there are many candidates to fill that position because if you had asked me a few months ago, I might have said Tyreek Johnson um, could potentially be the answer. But then Kerry Combs said that you know he's an outside cornerback, so I expect him to play on the outside. So then it's, to me, Marcus Williamson – um, who's 5'10", 186. He's a completely different build than everybody else in the room. And then there's either Cam Brown or Seven Banks if one of them shifts inside. And we didn't see them shift inside you know, earlier this year for, for spring camp. I'm not really sure exactly what the plan is there and, and whether either of them will, will move inside. What I predicted is Marcus Williamson would play the slot and then you have Cam Brown and, and Seven Banks rotating opposite Sean Wade. But I think there's there, there are quite a few different ways it could go. Like you, like you said, what if Ohio State doesn't use a slot corner as much? Could you just rotate Seven Banks, Cam Brown opposite Sean Wade and then play you know two safety looks more often than, than you did a year ago? I think that's certainly possible. Um, could you have... Um, could you play all three of those guys, Sean Wade, Cam Brown, and Seven Banks, um, full-time uh, snaps and, and move one inside and then one out, and then Sean Wade and the other guy outside? I think that's certainly possible. I really don't know how this is going to go, and I think that that's why it's one of my, my biggest interests right now. Yeah, I do think we're going to see a rotation one way or another uh, at cornerback. And, and I don't know if that will be at, you know, all spots or just one spot. But, you know, I mean, I get the impression just across the secondary as a whole. To me, I think there's, you know, there's there's six or seven guys who I think are, are probably going to have some degree of playing time. And that would be you know, Sean Wade, Seven Banks, Cam Brown, Tyreek Johnson, Marcus Williamson, Marcus Hooker, and, and Josh Proctor. And I think, you know, the question is just, you know, because I, I think last year, Part of a reason why there wasn't a rotation was because, you know, those four guys were all just so good. There was there was no reason to take those guys off the field. I think this year, you mean Sean Wade's not coming off the field. There's there's, I'd be shocked if Sean Wade's ever coming off the field for a meaningful snap unless he's injured because 
he's too good to take off the field. But I think if those other three spots, you might see some more rotation this year. And, you know, you might see some different things. I mean, you might even see a guy, Josh Proctor, who people think is a safety. I mean, he might line up in the slot sometimes. Maybe a Marcus Hooker does. I, I, I think there could be some different variables here that uh, we don't necessarily know about or, or, or see coming yet. But uh, I, I, I do think there's going to be some different looks. I, I don't buy necessarily that this defense is going to look exactly the same as it did last year. And the reason why I don't isn't just because it's a new defensive coordinator, but it's because they don't have the same personnel that they did last year. And I think the way they deployed their secondary last year made total sense with the guys they had, and their guys were so good that it worked really well. But I think if the guys who fill in those starting spots aren't quite as good, it then it might not work as well. So Tyreek Johnson... I think he's the guy for maybe not the last year, but the year prior, we got the most questions on about, you know, what is he doing? What's he up to? How is he developing? And if you had asked me a couple years ago when when he signed, I would have said this might be the year that he breaks through. But right now, do you expect that he's in the rotation? Do you think he'll be in a reserve role? What, what, What do you think about him? I think he'll get some playing time, but if I was going to predict like who's going to start, I would not put him there right now. I, I do think he's going to be behind Seven Banks and Cam Brown in terms of uh, the rotation and who plays the most, just because I, I think those guys uh, have come further along in their first two years at, at Ohio State, and I, I think they're the guys who really seem more likely uh, to be starting caliber players at this point. But, you know, certainly a guy like Tyreek, as talented as he is, uh, you want to try to find a role for him at this point and going into his third year. And there is still, again, there is certainly a variable here of you've got a new cornerbacks coach coming in and and Gary Combs that, you know, if if they go into preseason camp and and Tyreek finally looks like this five-star guy he was recruited to be, you know, who knows? Maybe he does become a starter. But I think... If that's going to happen, he's got to have the preseason camp of his life. He's got to be better than he's been. Because I think, you know, I mean, even just the one spring practice we watch, and you hate to draw much out of that because it was just one practice, but unfortunately, it's literally all we have to go off at this point. <laughs> Seven Banks looked really good. Like, Seven Banks looked like a guy watching that. I'm like, he's going to be a starter, and he looks like he's ready to go. Tyreek, you see the flashes, but it's hard to tell if he's a guy who who's ready to be in there, you know, third and long, game on the line. Is he that guy that you can rely on to make the play? And that's the whole question at cornerback. I mean, a, a guy like Tyreek Johnson, I think he's got all the physical tools to, to be a great player, but I think from my impression is they've been waiting for him to put it all together and maybe this is the year that it happens but you've got to be sure that it's happened before you put him out there on the field with the game on the line at such an important position yeah i think when sean wade is gone next year i think that's the year where he really fully enters the rotation i'm not anticipating that he does that this year i mean i I, i've been surprised before they could surprise me again but I, I currently, right now, if I were to tier the defensive backs, I'd put Sean Wade in the first tier 
like nobody in the second tier yeah. <laughs> because Sean Wade has such a such a vast advantage over everybody else. I put seven banks and Cam Brown together in the third tier, and then I put Marcus Williamson fourth tier, Tyreek Johnson fifth tier. Like I still don't think I still think Marcus Williamson has a better chance to play this season than Tyreek Johnson. Um, and may, I, I could be wrong on that. I could be, you know, weighing his experience and, you know, how well he might fit into that slot cornerback position a little bit more, too highly. But I do think he's being totally overlooked and he could be a gigantic piece of this defense. Well, yeah, I think he could too because I think he's the only guy other than Sean Wade who really has any experience at all. I mean, we're talking about third team snaps here, but. I think he's legitimately the only guy who has any experience going into games and playing at slot corner. So uh, when you're that guy, you're certainly going to be a candidate uh, to be the starter at that position. And certainly him, you know, going into his senior year, uh, he's a guy who's desperately going to want to get on the field because he really hasn't played much uh, so far in his Ohio State career. So, you know, I, I, I think it's his job to lose in that I think, you know, he started, you know, I think he's going to go in to, to preseason camp and he's going to be the first guy there. But I think the door is still going to be wide open for someone to take it away from him. And I think he's going to have to prove uh, that he is the best guy for that job. You know, the numbers aren't really high at cornerback. They're, they, don't, they don't have a ton of cornerbacks on this roster, um, which means that it's probably worth mentioning the freshmen, even though we haven't, which is Ryan Watts, Legend Cavazos and Cam Brown. Do you anticipate, you know, any of these guys playing any degree of meaningful snaps or, or per usual, do you think the freshmen come off the bench and 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 are factors late in games? To be clear, Cam Brown is not a freshman. You meant to say oh. Cam Martinez in addition Too to Too many Cams. Uh, yeah, in, in addition to Legend Cavazos and Ryan Watts, but No, I think ideally you're not counting on any of them to play meaningful snaps this year. I think, you know, ideally it's those five guys that we mentioned before, you know, Wade, Banks, Brown, Williamson, Johnson. Those are the five guys you're hoping are going to be playing all the meaningful snaps at corner this year. But because there's not a ton of numbers there, I mean, at least one of those guys, uh, unless you're moving one of the, you know, safeties to, to, to slot corner, which I think could happen, but you know, there's a good chance at least one of those guys is going to be on your two deep. And you know, if you have injuries or you know, God forbid, you have a COVID outbreak, you know, those guys could be called upon. So those guys need to be ready. Uh, you know, Cavazos and Watts were both in uh, for uh, as early enrollees. They only got that one week of spring practice, but at least they've they've been in there a little bit. It gives them a leg up. Um, Martinez is a guy I'm really intrigued by just to see you know if he can get a role on special teams because uh, we know how versatile he is. But no, ideally uh, you're not counting on those guys to play any meaningful snaps at corner this year because uh, of all positions, I think cornerback is very high up on the list of a position you you ideally don't want to be throwing a true freshman in, right into the fray at. Yeah, I mean, I would go further. I would say they are in some deep trouble if they get to a point where any of these guys – any of the any of the three freshmen are on the field for meaningful snaps. Unless I mean, one that, of them becomes Derek Stingley, but that doesn't happen very often. Yeah, well also when I look at these three guys, like Legend Cavazos, he's super fast and people also say he's raw. He's not someone who he's someone who I think is gonna need to develop his technical skills a little bit. You know, he's was ranked three hundred and fifty two 
He's not a five-star prospect, even though he's got a five-star name. And Ryan Watts. Ryan Watts, I think, is fascinating because he's two inches taller than everybody else in the room. He's six foot three. Um, I think long term, I think a, a pairing of him and Legend is fascinating just because they're so different. But I don't think you can you can rely on him to, to play any any degree of meaningful role this this year. And then Cam Martinez, I'm in on Cam Martinez. I really like him, but like he's played quarterback, wide receiver. He's played all kinds of different positions. He's not. He's not a lifetime cornerback. He's going to need time in the system. I don't. I, I don't really foresee him, you know, playing being a factor um, for them at cornerback. So, that being said, if any of them are factors, to me that would spell trouble, and that's why I, I don't think that 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 we're going to mention their names that often this fall. You look at them though. I mean, you, if you just look at long term, you know, all the guys that we just mentioned before them. They're all in at least their third year at Ohio State. Yep. So, you know, those those guys, you know, this is an important year for those guys because you definitely, you look at as soon as next year, you know, Wade's going to be gone. Well, he, he could return for another year, but we He's don't gonna expect be that. Gone. He's going to be gone. <laughs> He's well, gone. Williamson's going to be gone. And then you never know, a Seven Banks or a Cam Brown could have a big year and they could go to the NFL too. So you, you look ahead to, you know, even next year, those guys – could be in a position to potentially play uh, as sophomores or redshirt freshmen. So uh, this is going to be an important year for their development. And uh, we know Ohio State uh, does have a commitment from a really high, highly rated corner uh, next year's class, Jacalyn Johnson. So he might be a guy that could come in in 2021 and potentially contend uh, for significant playing time. Uh, a few other guys uh, in the 2021 class. Denzel Burke, who's expected to play corner, and they've got a couple guys like uh, Andre Turrentine and and Jansen Dunn, who maybe their corners, maybe their safeties. Will be interesting to see how Ohio State decides to play that. But how do you feel about the long term future of Ohio State's cornerback room right now? I think it's interesting. Um, I, I think it goes back to this. Like we're twenty five minutes in. It's time to talk a little bit about Kerry Combs because when he comes back, I think that that elevates the cornerback room just immediately. I mean, he's proven to be such a great developer of talent, such a great um, recruiter that you know while they don't, while I don't know that they have a Jeff Okuda on their roster other than maybe Sean Wade um, or you know in their recruiting class um, either in 21 or 22. I feel pretty confident that Kerry Combs is going to get the best out of the guys that he has, and in future years, he's going to go out and get top-end talent. And I think that that's why, you know, long-term, I think if you look at the players, um, you know, they, they seem they're good. I don't know that I would say they're great, you know, if we're, if we're grading on Ohio State's stale, which means, like, I'm not, I'm not taking a crap on them. Like, they're, they're very good. But if we looked in the past and seen what Ohio State has produced at cornerback, the standard is so unrealistically, unbelievably high that you know, I in some sense I feel like I have to hold themselves to the standard that that they set. And you know, I'm interested in certain guys, but I I I think that most of my optimism comes from the fact that it's Kerry Combs who's who's leading the position group. Yeah, fact of the matter is, if you come to Ohio State to play cornerback for Kerry Combs, your expectation is to become a first-round NFL draft yeah. pick. That's yeah. the standard that has been set. 
by yeah, you know, start bad, to Brad, Bradley good. Roby, and then you go to you know Marshawn Lattimore and Gary and Conley and Eli Apple and Denzel Ward, and then of course Jeff Okuda and Damon Arnett this past year. Those guys were all first round draft picks, so that is the standard that has been set. I mean, we expect a year from now that Sean Wade is probably going to continue that trend. So that is the expectation, and whether you're a five star recruit or a three star recruit. That's the expectation. Certainly, you bring in a top 10 guy like a Jeff Okuda, and you you really, really expect that. But you have to hold all these guys to that same expectation because that is the standard that's been set in the room. And, you know, Kerry Combs is certainly going to hold himself to that standard that any cornerback I bring in, I believe I can turn this guy into a first-round pick. And if... Uh, if he's not doing that, then something went wrong. Yeah, and that's why I'll go back to the fact that if he's in the room, like maybe I don't think that the talent is what you know Ohio State um, had and, and Jeff Okuda and Marshawn Lattimore and um, and Sean Wade, um, but I think he can get it there. So I think that he's got the raw talent in the room. Um, I just think it has to progress maybe a little bit more so than, than some other guys he's had come through in the past. I'd agree with that. Is there anything else about the cornerbacks we haven't said that we should have said? Yes, but I'm going to save it for our three things. All right, we will we, we will get to that segment shortly, the three things we think. If, if you guys missed last week's episode, uh, a new segment we're doing. So It's really we'll a to- creative name. It really is. I mean, I don't even know if we actually, like, formally had a discussion about what it should be called. I think we just kind of, well, whatever, that's simple. Maybe if if anybody out there has got some great suggestion for us, let us know. uh, It's it's early enough that we're in the beta phase of it or whatever you want to call it. If if there's a beer company that wants to sponsor, like, the Miller 3-pack, we're down. (laughs) Just saying. Yeah, I remember that. Back in the day on ESPN, they yep. did that for Coors Light yeah, listen, six we pack can, or whatever. We can expand it to six, twelve, however, however, um, however long you want us to go. Beer company. Sounds sounds good to me. Sounds good to me. I'll get to that shortly. I wanted to look back. I had been thinking about doing this months ago, and then you know, uh, pandemic took over the world, and uh, everything kind of changed. But I wanted to look back briefly at. An exercise we did last year, and we're going to do again, uh, potentially next week, uh, depending on uh, what happens over the not, next week. Yeah. Because as we've learned this off season, uh, you can never plan too far ahead. But uh, before, in our pre-podcast days, we just did this as an article for the website. We took a look. We did a, a draft between the two of us of uh, the players on the team, and, and kind of built two teams uh, that would go head-to-head against each other. and uh, The voting for the team, uh, Colin edged me out uh, with 53.45% of the votes, and uh, rightfully so, because he had the number one overall pick, and he had Justin Fields, and he picked Justin Fields. And I don't think there's any question that whoever wins our coin flip for this year's draft is going to make the same number one overall pick, because that one certainly worked out. Yeah. Yeah, no, no kidding. I think it's, you know, I think the most interesting part about looking back on this, I know it's probably more interesting to us than everybody else, is, you know, because, 
you know, it gives us an idea of, of where we were at this point a year ago, who was overvalued, who was undervalued. And I think that, I mean, you can see it pretty early in the draft. I mean, even back then, we weren't stupid enough to not have Justin Fields and Chase Young go one and two. So, Dan, I'm very proud of us for that. Yeah, we were we were really going out on a limb there. Yeah, I know, I know. But number three, I mean, you got interesting at, at the time. At Thayer Munford um, was three, and Jordan Fuller was four. I, I think I took him, and Dobbins at five. You know, it, it all seems reasonable. Okuda, six. KJ Hill, seven. Malik Harrison, or wait, Malik Harrison, was, eight. Yeah. Wyatt Davis, nine. Josh Myers, 12. And then, Dan, I think this is where it goes off the rails. At number eleven, who did you take? I took Brendan White, and that, and I, and that, that, that really is. That's really when you look back at this. That really is the one that jumps off the page because it kind of, it, it, it was kind of a theme of a season where, and everything else was going right. The one perplexing question was, what the heck happened to Brendan White? And and I remember you know us doing this draft. We we actually did it in a car driving down to Nashville with several of our colleagues at like midnight because we had been waiting to get on a flight all day and uh, our flight was delayed about 20 times before it was canceled so uh, that was our opportunity to do this draft but you know I just remember thinking at the time that Brendan White was going to play this huge role in uh, the bullet position and and that obviously never materialized but Looking back, yeah, knowing that I I took Brendan White at eleven, allowing Sean allowing Colin to take Sean Wade at twelve, that was an error in judgment. So you know my lesson from this, and it's sort of something that I've hit on a few times. It's that you know as confident as it feels like we are that Ohio State's going to do something in the off season, they could go and do something completely different. And that's why I think that we have both tried to be pretty open to what they can do. Like I don't. I feel like we've been talking for a long time, and I don't know how many other people are talking about this. Um, I, I really have no idea, but I think we've both been talking about the idea of Ohio State maybe, you know, putting a safety at bullet, um, moving moving Pete Warner inside to, to have that. Maybe they go more two safety looks, less um, three cornerback looks. I don't know. I think that to, to, to believe that Ohio State is just going to run it back and have the exact same defense they had last year, I think that's foolish, even though that's sort of what they've talked about in, in the offseason a little bit. And I think that that Brennan White, that the, the Brennan White selection sort of reminds me of that, that, you know, we might think something right now and it might seem obvious. It might be something that the coaches are talking up, but it doesn't mean it's going to happen once the season starts. Additionally, looking back at it, you know, I, I, I took Thayer Munford with the third pick because the rest of the offensive line was so inexperienced, and I still don't. I still don't think that was a bad pick because, uh, you know, he, he he's a very good left tackle. But I think certainly, uh, in hindsight, uh, I would have taken Jeff Okuda with the third pick, and I was lucky that I got him with the sixth pick. Uh, you know, probably in hindsight, not that it matters, but you took Jordan Fuller over J.K. Dobbins. In hindsight, you're probably taking Dobbins over Fuller with the kind of year that he had. Yeah, there's a few others that I think we can mention just because they're interesting to see where we were a year ago. And that is, you know, I took Sean Wade at 12, and then I took Tyreek Smith at 13. So I think that goes back to the point that we we had mentioned a a couple weeks ago where, 
Like Tyreek Smith, we were on breakout watch last year. So for us to have that kind of high expectation last year, now he's got another year of development, I think it's fair to put him on breakout watch again. I think you getting Olave at 14 was a steal. And then I, at 17, I got Nick Petit Frere, which again was aggressive on my part. Um, and I think that that's where, you know, when I take Tyreek Smith and Nick Petit Frere, I think that's an example of me looking at the recruiting rankings and, and just banking on that rather than past production. Whereas you at 27 went and got Pete Warner, who was good, and then turned into being really good during the season. Yeah, I, I remember us doing the draft, and I think we were kind of just both hesitant to pick a linebacker because yeah. uh, I think we also, I think we, I also knew in my head that the readers who were going to vote on it were going to see Pete Warner and Tuff Borland and, and want to vote against them because they were both so hated at the time. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I kind of felt at the time like getting Pete Warner at, at 27, like, there's a good chance that I'm getting a, a, a steal here, uh, you know. But I, it was still I was still hesitant to take him earlier because he had had such an up and down year the year before. So I think certainly when we do our draft this year, there is no chance Pete Warner is going to fall anywhere close uh, to the 27th pick. And you know the same goes for a, a Chris Olave, who I remember when we did this last year. I, I even wrote him there. I thought he was going to emerge as Ohio State's best wide receiver. I was actually hesitant to take K.J. Hill over him because I thought Chris Olave was going to have a bigger year. But then I got back to, ah, i got to play it safe here. I can't pass up a K.J. Hill to draft a Chris Olave when we know uh, what a K.J. Hill is. So, I, I, you know, those are the kind of things that I think are, are interesting to see. You know, another one that stood out to me, you know, I remember – uh, you actually wrote it. You entered the draft with the intention of allowing me to pick whichever defensive tackles I I preferred, and you still ended up with Devon Hamilton and Jay Sean Cornell. Yeah. Devon Hamilton, who uh, you you have been on the train for all along uh, for the underrated guy of last season. You got him at thirty six. If we had redone the draft, he would have gone a lot higher than thirty six. He would have, and I think when I look back. Um, like a couple lessons that we can learn. You know, I took Jalen Gill at 29, and then I took Devon Hamilton at 37. I think that's another example of, like, if you if you if you ride the recruiting ranking too much over you know production, I do think sometimes it gets you burned. And and just because certain guys have the recruiting ranking they do, I don't think you can necessarily pencil them in. Um, and I might have done that a couple too many times, but you know, if we're gonna match them up, looking back. I still do have Justin Fields, Dan. You do, you do, and that's uh, we'll, shout we'll, out to my coin flipping skills. If you're going to Visfruva website, it will be uh, linked in our post on the website, so you can uh, take a look back and see what we did last year, and uh, you can then tell us what you think. But uh, you know, I, I I felt you know I I, I think I look the thing is I look back at it and I say. I think we both drafted pretty well for the most part. I think I don't think there were any, uh, you know, other than you know Brendan White, which was really unexpected. A couple guys like Pete Warner and Devon Hamilton that we got as big steals. There wasn't a lot that I looked back on and said, "Man, we we really got this wrong." I mean, one thing that stands out is just looking at the lineups how we both drafted uh, two corners and two safeties. So uh, we, we 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 weren't necessarily expecting. Uh, the three cornerback, one safety 
uh, look that it ended up being. So that will be a different variable uh, for us to consider when we do this exercise again this year. Yeah, I look forward to it. I think maybe as early as next week we'll, we will get started on it. So we also did a basketball team last year. I think that kind of went the same way where basically we did a coin flip. You took football because you wanted Justin Fields. I would have done the same thing. So then I got the number one pick in basketball. I took Caleb Wesson. Uh, that certainly would not have changed based on what we saw last year. I think it's tougher to evaluate the basketball one because we didn't get to see the end of the season. So everything just kind of feels so incomplete there. Uh, but I don't think that would have changed. I, I think the one thing that stands out to me is I remember at, at one point in the season thinking back to this draft and thinking about how DJ Carton, I got him at number four, but he was the number two pick on my board and thinking, yeah, I got that one right. I absolutely would have taken number two again. And then like days after I had that thought, he was off the team and didn't return again. So uh, things things can change very quickly, uh, but it, it's almost hard to even look back with just all the things that happened in last year's Ohio State basketball season and then not even getting to see the conclusion of it. It's almost hard to even say, you know, at the end of the year, other than Caleb Wesson being number one, how you would have ranked the rest of the roster at that point. Yeah, I think I got a couple steals, which evened it out a little bit. Like C.J. Walker at 6 and Kyle Young at, at yep. 7, I think, were pretty important. And then if you add E.J. Liddell and Luther Muhammad, Musa Jallo, if he was healthy, like I do think that my team would have been competitive. But, you know, I guess uh, I guess it's hard to evaluate when, you know, your point guard is D.J. Carton, who didn't make it through the season, and then... You know, one of my and then two of my guys, Alonzo Gaffney and Luther Muhammad, transferred. Who who knows? I think that I think basketball that one's about that's as hard to evaluate as when people try to you know talk about uh, Chris Holtman's tenure. I just think that I think right now the basketball team is in a and it's in a really difficult to evaluate place. And I think honestly that's an interesting conversation to have that we won't have right now. Maybe we'll have it you know down the line once they actually start playing again. Yeah, I think, and I think drafting the basketball team could be really fun this year because like, oh, yes. right now as we speak, I don't even know who the top pick would be because there's not that Caleb Wesson going into this year. And I think there's so there many moving... There are options. Yeah, there's so many moving parts that uh, uh, it'll actually make it more interesting because we already know the, the football team's draft and the subsequent poll is going to be decided by who wins the coin flip because... Uh, it's just going to be hard for anyone to pick against the team that has Justin Fields. But, uh, you know, a basketball team, uh, a lot of different variables there. There certainly are. Dan, you want to, you want to, um, do you have three things? Do you want to? I actually did write three down this week. I'm worried that we're going to overlap, but I I actually did write three down. All right. My, my issue this week too, is that I don't have a backup. So Dan, I'm just going to let you start, though. Go Use the one that you think that we're going to both have. All right. Well, this is my number one, and this is the one I think you might have, too. But there was a big controversy last week about the Elite 11 and uh, how the winner of the competition was decided. And that 
it, it was decided 50% based on junior tape and 50% based on the camp, which resulted in Caleb Williams, uh, who you know many people do consider to be the best quarterback in the country, winning the Elite 11, even though it seemed like, based on the results of the competitions they did at the camp, that he was not the standout quarterback, that maybe Kyle McCord or uh, Ty Thompson, who's an Oregon commit, uh, you know, Brock Vandegrift, who's a George commit, maybe some of those guys had actually outperformed him at the camp. So this was kind of a whole controversy uh, about, you know, the Elite 11 and, you know, how that camp is run. And, you know, I, I think it's a cool event in general and you know their argument is that the elite 11 is not just a camp that it's a year-long thing and and so they don't want to put all the stock into the camp but to me if you're gonna bring the guys in for a competition then choose your mvp based on the competition choose your 11 based on the competition because we already have recruiting rankings that are based on high school film let it be a true competition. Let it just be based on the camp. To me, I, I don't think it needs to be based on what Trent Dilfer and his advisors saw on tape from the year before. Okay, that wasn't one of mine, but I co-signed because I like. I don't know. I thought that I was going crazy when I was seeing that it was fifty-fifty or seventy-five twenty-five or whatever they decided on. Uh, between tape and and you know their actual workouts because I don't really remember that from past years I don't know I feel like maybe I I don't did I ever know that or have I don't know yeah I didn't know it I my feeling is it just got more attention this year because there's so little else happening in <laughs> yeah. sports no that kid. I think people were paying more attention to it than they normally would because and, and also remember too the elite eleven it's usually part of the opening. Uh, this year, or I guess it's not even called the opening anymore. It's called the Dick Sporting Good Combine or something like that. But it, it sure. used to. Be, it, it's usually part of the opening as a whole big event. So there's a lot more going on. This year it was just a quarterback competition because of, of COVID-19. So I think it just got a lot more attention than it normally would. And also, let's be honest, uh, you Ohio State fans, you guys are always vocal if if uh, you don't if no. you see a controversy in the way things are going and la- last year uh, unbeknownst to Ohio State at the time and an eventual Ohio State signee actually won the competition in CJ Stroud uh, Jack Miller got hurt and wasn't able to fully participate so there was no controversy there but I think that was part of it uh, I think you know there were some people thinking well, you know Caleb Williams was getting ready to commit to Oklahoma just a few days later. Uh, maybe people thought you know they were kind of trying to hype up that commitment uh, by naming him the winner. But yeah, I, I hadn't heard about it before. Um, I would kind of hope that they change this in in future years because I do I do think it gives some people the impression. Uh, right or wrong, that the competition's rigged, and you know you get people you know saying it's a it's a scam or whatever, and I, I don't think that's true. I think you know what they're doing is is a cool thing, and I and I think it's cool for all the guys to get to participate. But just let them compete. Just make it a make it a competition. Uh, let it be based on the camp. Uh, Caleb Williams is already the top ranked quarterback in the country. If he doesn't outperform everyone else at the camp, then he doesn't need to be the elite eleven MVP too. Yeah, and I, I get, you know, one, I don't remember if it was Dilfer or someone else had 
um, you know, tried to explain it a little bit, and their point was that they aren't just evaluating, you know, three days of workout. There's more that goes into it. They want to, you know, rank the players who they think are going to be the best long-term quarterbacks, and I get that. I think that that's cool, but like, if you're gonna rank, if you're gonna have camp rankings, I don't know. Feel like they should go off what happens at the camp. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It's a minor thing, but here's the thing: nothing has has happened in sports in like four months, so it's time to get angry at meaningless things. I mean, that's what sports is all about. Uh, you're absolutely right about that. If this was happening in October, we probably wouldn't even be talking about it. No, but, I wouldn't uh, have even known it happened. But yeah. you know, since it happened, I'm angry about it, and I'm glad. And you know what that means? That means Dan for at least three days, sports is back. All right, so I thought you were going to have that one. I know there was something you thought I was going to have too. So why don't you go ahead and, and bring that one up? Um, I don't know that I'm going to do that yet. I don't because I okay. actually thought of a okay. fourth one, and now I might not do that one. So I'll just say this: um, I'm not usually someone who like thinks that you know all decade teams and stuff like that are crazy. And I get it; people have different opinions. But I thought leaving Ezekiel Elliott off in favor of specifically Savon, Saquon Barkley for the first team, um, all-decade team, I thought that was a little nuts. I mean, if you look at their stats, um, one, if you're just going off of stats, like I think Ezekiel Elliott has a strong case, just, just, enough, it's just enough that. But if you look at what he did in big games, I mean, does anyone need a reminder of that three-game stretch he had? Um, when when he led Ohio State to the national title in 2014, I mean he rushed for at least that, the the thing that I thought was interesting. He rushed for 200 plus yards in the Big Ten championship game. Then he did it against Alabama in the semifinal. And then he did it against Oregon in the championship. Saquon Barkley in three years at Penn State ran for 200 yards three times, and it was against Purdue, Maryland, and Iowa. I don't know, man. I feel like the guy who led Ohio State to the to the national championship should probably be a first team, all all uh, all decade team uh, running back. Yeah, I mean, I I can't say that I uh, can can be too indignant about Saquon Barkley being on there because he was a two time Big Ten Offensive Player of the Year. I mean, he, he's a pretty spectacular player. Uh, you know, I think when people compare the rushing stats, that's a little bit disingenuous because. Uh, Saquon Barkley uh, did a lot as a receiver as well. He also played a lot in the return game. Uh, so I think he's plenty deserving to be on the first team. With that said, if I was voting, I do agree with you. I, I do think Ezekiel Elliott uh, w- should be on the first team. I, I would have voted for Ezekiel Elliott and Jonathan Taylor uh, to be the two backs on the first team. And it, yeah, it does I, go back. It does go back to the same reasons you said that. I mean, if you're just talking about. In 10 years of Big Ten football, if you, if you were going to pick out what's the best like individual stretch of games a Big Ten player had in the past 10 years, to me, it is without a doubt that three-game stretch that Ezekiel Elliott had to lead Ohio State to the 2014 National Championship. Yeah, and also, I think Saquon Barkley's awesome. I loved him in college. I loved watching him. Like I thought he was so fun to watch run the ball, but... Like, if you're going to pick it because Saquon Barkley's awesome, well, then why isn't Dwayne Haskins the quarterback? Why is JT Barrett the quarterback? I don't know. I don't know. This is another meaningless thing, Dan, but I'm angry about it, and that's what these three things are supposed to be about. Give me your second one. 
It's it's July. It's July. We gotta we gotta debate all decade teams and elite eleven results. It's it's all yeah, we got I mean, right now, man. It is. Uh, okay, my second one. I'm gonna go back to the elite eleven, and this is oh this is this, this is just more of a a thought. It's not a take. It's more of a thought. I like is, that. Kyle McCord is really good. Maybe we okay. shouldn't be overlooking him in the 2021 quarterback battle. Should should should. Should should we be just talking about C.J. Stroud or Jack Miller, or or should should we be keeping open the possibility that Kyle McCord is really good and he might come in and beat out both of them next year? Yeah, I mean, I was very impressed. Like you, I didn't have a lot going on, so I sat in front of my Instagram and decided to watch. I don't even know who was streaming it, but I was watching it, um, and. Yeah, I thought the same thing. I thought he was really good. The, I think maybe the most interesting scenario out there is what happens if the things get moved to the spring and all of a sudden Kyle McCord enrolls early and C.J. Stroud and Jack Miller don't have a, a jump start on him anymore. What would happen then? And I, I have no idea. I really have no idea. And I think that that would be a fascinating scenario. Hopefully we never get to that point. Um but yeah, I was impressed by him. I, I I still have him if the season starts as planned this fall. I still have him as a pretty clear third. But you make a strong point. It's worth. It's maybe worth keeping that open more than you or I have. Yeah, I mean, I think the challenging thing, if we go off of your logic, is that if Kyle McCord wins the starting job, then they risk potentially C.J. Stroud and Jack Miller yeah. both transferring. And then having no quarterback depth chart. So uh, I think that's uh, the problem there. But at the same time, I also think you've got to play your best guy, especially at quarterback. So I think. And my day has shown you, know, you will, even if it I, means messing up the entire quarterback room. That's what he has Yeah, I think if Kyle McCord deals. comes in next spring, and I'm not saying I think this is going to happen, because I agree with you, I think if you have a full fall in, in CJ Stroud and Jack Miller, both get some playing time, and, and they get that opportunity. Uh, that'll give them a leg up on Kyle McCord. And so I would be surprised if Kyle McCord came in and beat both of them out next year. But I do think he's really talented. I mean, he, he throws a really nice ball. Uh, you know, I, I, I do think he's a guy who, you know, certainly you'd expect at some point down the line is going to be a future starting quarterback at Ohio State. And so I don't think we should rule out that possibility. I think uh, I wouldn't bet on it. I'd bet on either of the other two starting before him because they are going to have that year ahead of him. But I don't think we can rule out the possibility. My second thought is just an appreciation thought about you know what Jordan Fuller did for the defense last year. Because I just feel like so often when I think about Ohio State's defense this year, when we talk about it, when I talk about it to others, I, I really do – think a lot of my uncertainty about it stems from the fact that I don't really know who's going to do the job that Jordan Fuller did last year. And what he did obviously didn't turn him into a first-round pick. It wasn't a, he's not a, you know, he didn't sign an eight-figure signing bonus. But he was incredibly solid, and I think without Jordan Fuller, that defense is just different. It, it gives up more plays. Um, it, it all of a sudden is a little bit leakier on the back end. I think he was so solid last year, and he allowed them to get away with, you know, playing the defense they did. And, you know, I think the longer I, – I, I think I think it would – Ohio State fans should be worried if they're still thinking about Jordan Fuller once the season starts because it means that they're, you know, wishing for the days of Jordan Fuller. 
and I think that you know Josh Proctor and Marcus Hooker are very talented. But I do think it's worth noting that you know he, Fuller was a guy who, when he played, he didn't get a lot of highlights. His name wasn't out there um, all the time. Um, but you know he had a huge impact on what Ohio State did. Yeah, I mean, we just talked in the last segment about how Jordan Fuller was fourth in our draft last year, and uh, you know, you you took him fourth, but he was very high on my draft board too. And you know, in hindsight, yeah, I'm taking J.K. Dobbins and Jeff Okuda over him, but there's still not anybody else that I'm taking over Jordan Fuller. He'd still be top six on my board from last year's team because he played such an important role on the back end of that defense, and I, I do think he was underappreciated compared to a lot of his teammates. You know, because the thing about Jordan Fuller is he wasn't Malik Hooker. He wasn't a guy who was making a ton of highlight reel plays. So I think, you know, he, he didn't ne- – the roles he played didn't necessarily lend itself uh, to his name coming up a ton and to him making a lot of highlights. But that role that he played is arguably as important as any role to the success of that defensive scheme. And if if Marcus Hooker or Josh Proctor can't come in – and, and provide that same kind of reliability on the back end, there's a potential that this scheme just doesn't work. So I think he was a really important player, uh, absolutely a guy who probably deserved more credit than he got last year, and uh, a guy that they need somebody uh, to step up and prove that they can be the same kind of reliable uh, eraser, as Jeff Halfley called it, on the back end. Yep, and I don't know that they have an eraser this year, and that's why... I think he did. We, we deserve to give him a little bit of props in this July uh, period where literally nothing's going on. I can think about Jordan Fuller making open field tackles. Dan, what's your third thing? Third thing, I've uh, been watching some of a TBT here at, over the past week, and I don't really have any uh, specific takes on the TBT because by the time you're listening to this podcast, uh, Big X and Carmen's crew might have already played their Wednesday games, but... Uh, Watching the TV, and I shouldn't even really say watching the TVT, but kind of more just like following the news of what's happening and seeing how uh, teams have, uh, for the most part, it's gone well so far. There's only been a few teams that have had to drop out uh, due to positive tests. For the most part, uh, most guys have been cleared. Uh, teams have been able to play, and it seems like it's gone well. I mean, it's it's felt fairly normal watching it. There's no fans in the stands, but it's it's felt fairly normal uh, just watching guys play basketball again. But I do think it demonstrates the need for team sports competitions coming up this year uh, to have as much flexibility as possible because you know we we've seen the TBT. Uh, you know, they have an, an advantage in that uh, it's just one tournament. It's all these teams in a central location, and you can you know substitute in standby teams, or you know you can advance a team in a bracket uh, without you know compromising the entire in- integrity of event. You know, I mean, everybody understands uh, what the situation is here, and that things are going to come up. And, and you can keep plugging along as best as possible. But you think ahead to a college football season, uh, it, it, it's it's not going to be as easy to do that if, if a team has a you know COVID nineteen uh, you know a number of positive tests and they can't play. You know that could just lead to a last minute cancellation uh, of a game. But I do think those are the kind of things that we have to be prepared for. In, in a season coming up. And, you know, who knows? I mean, 
maybe there's a situation where, you know, for example, you know, maybe, I mean, these are just examples. Maybe Ohio State's scheduled to play someone and Indiana's scheduled to play someone. Uh, and, and both of their opponents, you know, maybe their opponents played the week before and, and some players tested positive for COVID-19 and, and they decide it's unsafe to play. You know, maybe Ohio State and Indiana at the last minute uh, come up with uh, a way to play a game against each other that weekend. I think college football is going to need to be open to all of these different kind of possibilities, uh, to, to last-minute schedule changes, uh, to, to potentially a schedule that's unlike any we've ever seen in college football before, just to make this season work. And I think maybe the TBT, even though it's very different, gives us a little bit of a template uh, for some things that that other sports could look at. Yeah, I think that my concern um, with the NCAA and how college football operates is I don't necessarily know how nimble it is and how it can, how, how well it would adjust to those last minute changes and how how it can make those. I that's the part that I'm just it's incredibly skeptical on when it comes to the folks running it. Yeah, I'm not saying I'm confident that that's going to happen. I just think it's. It was something that I thought of. I saw someone make that point about you know how it's worked out really well for the TBT, uh, but maybe it doesn't necessarily work. I think they used it in the context of professional leagues, you know, because same thing. I mean, NBA playoffs, you can't just uh, substitute a team out and and put the Knicks in. I mean, I don't think you're going to do that. Uh, it, it's going to work a little bit differently in a professional league when there's a lot more on the line. But I do think there's probably some things that all the other sports can learn from what's going on with TBT right now. And I and I give credit to TBT because I'll be honest, the, like the, before the tournament even started and there were a few teams already dropping out, I, I, was, a little wor- I was a little worried. Yeah, I was a little worried. I was thinking this, this might be a disaster. Uh, but uh, it seems like things have stabilized. You know, certainly uh, there could be things that come up here as we go. But uh, so far, they've been able to play the vast majority of games, and, and the tournament's gone well so far. So uh, hopefully over the next week, uh, that will continue, and uh, hopefully we'll get to watch some uh, Big X and Carmen's crew. I'll take it. Number three for me, the last thing, is, you know, I had, when, I, when I wrote this down in our little show sheet, our little show notes, I had said... This is this is exactly what I wrote. A lot of guys, but do we worry this might be more like linebacker room than the defensive line room? And Dan, you asked, Colin, what in the world does that mean? And then I was like, okay, I need to put that in my three things <laughs> because clearly this is not. I need I need to do a little bit of explaining this. So my take, I don't even know if this is a take. This really is more of a question. Is like when I think about the linebacker room. I think it's incredibly solid. I really think it's very good. I think it's deep. I think, you know, you have veterans there. You have reliable guys there. I also don't think it. you have a star. I don't think that you're winning a national championship um, because of these linebackers. I think they can be part of a linebacker. I think they can be part of a national championship defense. I don't necessarily know that they're the reason why you're there and winning a national championship. I think that in the past, Larry Johnson's defensive line has been the reason why Ohio State has either won national championships or competed for national championships. And I think in the past, that's what Ohio State's defensive backfield has been too. But I think when you look at where this will be when Sean Wade leaves, I do wonder if 
the defensive backfield, at least for a year, two, three, I, I don't know how long, will be a little bit more, or even this year, will be a little bit more like the linebackers, where I think they'll be solid, they'll be good, but I don't necessarily know that they're the reason why Ohio State's winning a national title. And I think that, you know, when you have two units like that, that are solid and, and, and you know, they're, they're, they're good units, but they're not tremendous, they're not great units. I think that that makes it a little bit harder um, to get the play, get to the place that you want to get. And I don't know if that made any sense, Dan, <laughs> but that was a thought that I had. Yeah, I'm going to be honest. I, I had a little bit of trouble following that. Okay, that's, thought, that, so. that is good. That is good. <laughs> that, that means that, that means this is, you know, where this is where it should be. And that this is a thought that I had that nobody else should have because it makes no sense. Yeah, no, I mean, I, uh, I, I, I get where you're trying to go with it. I think the metaphor is a little bit forced, uh, but I, I, I get where you're trying to go with it. I mean, I, 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 I think what I, you know, I think what I would say is that, um, you know, no, I mean, I, I don't think, I, I certainly, I don't think the secondary um, is going to be the reason Ohio State wins a national championship this year. I guess the only way it would be in that it's, it's good enough, but it's not, you know, I, I think it's possible, definitely possible, the secondary could be the reason Ohio State doesn't win a national championship this year. And, 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 and that's just a reality of how inexperienced they are and how important I think that position group is. Uh, but no, I, I don't think they're going to be the group that uh, carries Ohio State uh, to a title. But at the same time, because of what we talked about before with Kerry Combs, the expectation for a Kerry Combs secondary has to be that this is the kind of group that can lead a national championship team. You know, I think back to the exercise I did on Saturday. You mentioned the all-decade team before. I did an exercise of comparing Ohio State's all-decade team uh, to the Big Ten all-decade team, and uh, the voting was overwhelmingly in favor of Ohio State, which was probably because it was on a a website for Ohio State fans. But... uh, what a lot of people pointed out in my mentions on Twitter was uh, they just kept looking at the secondary and saying you know, that that secondary is going to win the game for Ohio State. And, and that's how good Ohio State's secondary has been for the past decade. And so uh, I think that's going to be the expectation going forward. All right, Dan, you want to you wanna answer some questions? I know we've got quite a few of them, so we'll try to run through these fairly, fairly quickly. Yeah, yeah, we got uh, quite a few, lots of good ones. So we'll, yeah, there uh, are some really good ones. Yeah, so we'll try to get to them first we can. Uh, starting out with Seattle Linga, he said, "Let's assume that we have a full season of basketball. What, in your opinion, is the ceiling for Ohio State?" And I'll let All you right. start yeah. with that because you're the basketball guy. I mean, I think that this basketball team is incredibly fascinating, and as fascinating as any that that Chris Holtman has had since he's been at Ohio State. Like, if I'm being honest, like, I think the ceiling is, you know, Final Four. Like, I I legitimately do think that's the ceiling. I mean, we can have another conversation of, you know, what are the odds that they're going to get there, but I think that that's absolutely the ceiling. I think if you look up and down the roster, you know, you have a very veteran team, um, an upperclassman filled team. Um, the interesting thing to me is that a lot of those guys, you know, are transfers. This is going to be their first, um, you know, time playing for Ohio State. And I think when you're integrating all kinds of those guys, I think this has a chance to be a little bit of, 
you know, the opposite of some seasons that we've seen recently where Ohio State just comes out gangbusters and then has a you know stretch in the middle of the season that they struggle. I think this could be the opposite. I think they could, you know, struggle a little bit early on just to, you know, figure out how to play together, um, especially with the unconventional offseason. And then, you know, click later in the year. And, I mean, I look at guys, like, I think Justice Sewing is going to be really good. Um, I wrote about him, I think that was last week. I really think he's going to be good. Kyle Young's obviously going to be going to be solid. Uh, EJ Liddell, I think if you look for him to take a step forward, how good can he be? Can he be an all-Big Ten performer? I certainly think he can. Will he be that? I don't know. Like Dwayne Washington's going to be in the biggest role um, of, his, of his tenure at Ohio State. How is he going to perform? I think that the ceiling is there. I don't necessarily know um, what my expectation level is going to be. I've said it before. I think I'm going to be higher on this team than the general consensus. Like I think this is a top 15 team. I think it, I think it will be a top 15 team. Um, but because there are so many players that I think can go one of two ways, um, whether it be a guy like E.J. Liddell, who maybe he's a star, or maybe he just doesn't take the leap that we think, or someone like Dwayne, who you know maybe he can get it together and start being a more consistent offensive player, or maybe a shot selection is still really poor and he's inconsistent, um, and that's a problem. And I think I think they're going to be really good. I just I don't know what they're going to, to reach. I think this is a really hard team to figure out, and I think that'll be the general consensus. Yeah, and I think in regards to the ceiling, the ceiling's probably pretty high, but I think the floor is also pretty low because yes, uh, you don't have an established star like Caleb Wesson, and uh, there's a lot of question marks. I mean, you're, you're relying heavily on guys like Justice Suing and Seth Towns who haven't played in an Ohio State uniform before. So, yeah, I, mean, I think the ceiling, I mean, yeah, I mean, this, is, this could be a second weekend NCAA tournament team at least, I think, if, if, if it all comes together, but... Uh, I think it's also a possibility uh, for worse. And, and I do think it's probably a team that's going to get better as the season progresses uh, because you're going to be counting on a lot of guys uh, who weren't playing key roles last year. Our second question from Nuttabuckas. Well, oh my. Um, under the assumption there's going to be an, uh, we're going to give it that. Under the assumption there's going to be an upcoming season, who finishes the year with the most sacks among these three? Tyreek Smith, Jonathan Cooper, Zach Harrison. Zach Harrison. I agree with that. Yeah, we'll just go rapid fire on that. We've we've talked yeah. about it before. I think uh, I I've kind of putting his over under around you know that ten mark. Uh, Chase Young had ten and a half as a sophomore. I think he's got. Uh, by far the highest upside of a group. And so I, I do think he's going to be our top pass rusher. Yeah, I think if, um, you know, if we're going to do the full team, if I were to make a bold prediction, mine would be that Baron Browning leads them in sacks. But among these three, uh, yeah, Zach Garrison's the answer. That so, is a bold prediction. That I know it is. Prediction. I know it is. Um, Should have saved that like, for a free things I, we think. Yeah, as I was coming out of my mouth, I was like, do I want to say this or do I want to <laughs> say this for next week? I don't know. But... Um, since there's so much sports happening, I'm not too worried about you know using up a take here. Um, we can we can still talk about that one in the future. Yeah. Another one from Nutabuck is, um, whose name I still can't pronounce. Um, how many years before Jeff Halfley and BC truly start competing for ACC titles? He says it wouldn't surprise them if there's a North Carolina like turnaround within that program. Dan, you talked to uh, Jeff Halfley a week or two ago. So what where, what is your thought on on that? 
Yeah, I mean, the hard thing about that is they're in the same division as Clemson. So in terms of truly start competing for ACC titles, there's a long way that BC's got to go if it's going to get to that point of where it can really challenge uh, Clemson to be an ACC title contender. Uh, I do think there's going to be a turnaround there. I do think Jeff Hathley is going to get them to a point uh, of being more competitive uh, than they were under Steve Adazio, but I do think there's a, a ceiling there. I, I think it, it's going to be tough for Boston College to become a, a serious championship contender because there's just not a ton of talent in the Northeast, uh, so you know he, you know you're you're going to be working with a lot of you know free star guys there. I think it's going to be hard to get to a point at BC where uh, you're regularly getting four and five star kind of guys to really be uh, competing for titles. Uh, so to me, I you know I think if I look at Jeff Halfley's uh, future. I think you know your goal there at BC is you know get them to that point where they can they can win eight or nine games, maybe a really good year they can push for double digits. And if you can do that, then you're probably going to have the opportunity uh, to go to a bigger program where you really will have a chance to compete for conference titles and and you know even beyond that. But I, I do think at Boston College, I, I I think the deck is somewhat stacked against you. Um, you know, obviously, you know, his goal is going to be to win ACC titles. Uh, but I think he's walking into a, a challenging spot. I mean, it, it's not a bad spot. It's not a Chris Ash Rutgers spot. There's there's definitely a, a, a better base at Boston College and a, a weaker overall conference where, you know, I, I can Boston College get to a point where, you know, it's, you know, a, a top five team into ACC with Jeff Halfley? I, I think that is certainly possible. I just don't know if they can get to a Clemson level. And also, I you know the North Carolina like turnaround. I just don't see it happening because the reason why that turnaround is you know it, it feels so significant is because they're recruiting at an insane pace. If you look at Boston College's 2021 recruiting class right now, they have 18 commitments. Only one is ranked within the top 650, and he's ranked 501st. They don't have a top 500 recruit in their class. They don't have a four-star commit. And I think that if you're going to compete against Clemson, if you want to be the next North Carolina, you have to figure out a way to recruit better. The The obvious issue there is, you know, in the Carolinas, in that area, there is a ton of talent. And when you're up in Boston College, there's just a, there's not nearly as much talent, and there's still, there, there's still a lot of teams that you have to fight, uh, fight for it with. Little Trouty asked us, which team gets better? Basketball team gets Dewan Jones or football team gets Jay Sean Tate. Well, I know which one I really want to see, and that's the basketball team getting Dewan Jones. And it's also the answer because the football team gets Jay Sean Tate, and then Jay Sean Tate goes and sits on the bench because yes. <laughs> he wasn't a five, four or five star prospect. So the basketball team gets Dewan Jones, and all of a sudden they get a six foot eight, three hundred sixty pound big man who is good enough to get max scholarship offers so that that answer little trouty is pretty easy little trouty also asked the best and worst professors we had at ohio state i'm not going to answer the worst um because first of all to be honest i i don't even have an answer for that um 
truthfully, I don't even remember half of my professors' names at Ohio State because other than journalism classes, I didn't take the rest of my classes that seriously. So, uh, you know, there's not one that stands out in my mind as as someone who is a bad professor. And even if there was, uh, I I wouldn't be trashing them on a podcast. There's no, there's no, no benefit whatsoever for me to do that. But in terms of best professor, I'm, I'm happy to talk about that one. And uh, the best professor I had, uh, there, there were several uh, professors from the journalism program who I learned a lot from. But for me, I, I would have to say Dan Katernikia, who was uh, the advisor of The Lantern while I was a student at Ohio State. And uh, I, ac- I actually went into Dan's office the first day I was on campus because I was really eager uh, to start working for The Lantern. And uh, had him uh, in classes all the way until my last semester at Ohio State, I believe. So uh, Dan is someone who uh, I probably learned more about journalism from him than you know anyone else who's come into my life. Uh, you know, really someone who just uh, did an excellent job of, of teaching me uh, how to be a reporter, uh, how to be a professional. You know, I think he's someone who always. Uh, you know, and he, he's not a professor at Ohio State anymore. He actually works in uh, development now uh, at the university, but he's not a professor anymore. But you know, when he was, uh, you know, I, I just thought he did such an excellent job uh, with all of us of just teaching us how to be professionals, uh, you know, teaching us how to be reporters, and and holding us to a, a professional standard. I, I always appreciated that. I felt like he treated us like adults. Uh, not just students, but really expecting us to do professional quality work. And, and he was a tough grader. I mean, he, he expected a lot out of us, uh, you know, as students and as, uh, you know, Lantern employees, which I was uh, for a while. Uh, but I learned so much from him. Um, I, there's so many things that I learned from him as a student that I continue to use today as a journalist. So, uh, you know, for me, I'm, I'm really grateful uh, to, to Dan Katerniki of it, I had him as a professor at Ohio State uh, because he really helped me along in becoming a journalist. Yeah, I think uh, you know I missed him by maybe you know one year. Maybe he was even um, a professor and, and running the Lantern my first year at Ohio State. I just wasn't involved. I, I can't. I don't really remember. Um, but you know, I didn't have any personal interactions with him. But I know a lot of people thought highly of him. Um, the I, I would probably name two. Um, I would name Nicole Nicole Kraft as um, you know she was she's a journalism professor at Ohio State and you know she's someone who I think saw me develop from a super quiet uh, sophomore at Ohio State and to someone who is um, you know able to be a journalist and talk to human beings like a normal person. Um, <laughs> And, you know, I think a lot of people think highly of her just because she's so passionate about what she does and she wants everyone to do great things and, and be great journalists. And I know everyone appreciates that about her. Um, I mean, she helped me get my first internship. If she didn't vouch for me, I really don't, or not my first internship, my last internship at the Cape Cod Times. I don't think I'd get that without her. So I'll always be appreciative of her. The other personal name, I, I, I did have to look him up because I just forgot, I forgot his name. Um, because I had him, you know, one semester. It was a, it was my very last semester at Ohio State. His name was W. Scott McGraw, and he. I, I don't remember the exact class I took. I think it was an anthropology GE, 
And all I remember is, like, I hated science, like, with a burning passion. And he was so passionate about science. He was one of those people that, even though I didn't like it, I didn't care about it, he was so passionate that he made me want to learn it and made me want to, you know, get better at that. And I always appreciate that. And um, I really think that he was he was a tremendous professor. And um, yeah, he is he is definitely one half of my answer. And I would like to second uh, your praise of Nicole Kraft as well because I did have her as a professor as well, and uh, she's also fantastic. If I had, if I had named two, uh, she would have been uh, right there alongside Dan. So uh, she's an excellent professor who's still a professor at Ohio State, and I know, uh, you know, I know our Kevin Harish thinks very highly of her as well, and and many other journalism students have had great experiences with her. So she certainly deserves the praise. Our next question from Ziploc007, heck of a name. Uh, he says, you know, be honest, your odds of a college football season start as scheduled and end as scheduled. Dan, do you have, I think we actually <laughs> were talking about this with our boss on Monday, so I think we know our odds on this, actually. Yeah, I, I think we were also asked this last week or a similar uh, variation of this question. I think we've been asked it a lot, and, you know, to be completely honest, I, I I don't have a better answer now than I did a week ago or a month ago because there's just so much that's still up in the air and I I think maybe the clarity is coming a little bit slower than I thought at this point. You know I I, I was thinking coming into this week that like maybe this week or probably next week is when we hear answers and now it's kind of starting to sound like maybe we're not going to hear until late July a, a more concrete answer. But you know my odds of the season. I mean, if honestly, the odds of season starts as scheduled in terms of Ohio State playing a season opener against Bowling Green on September 5. Honestly, I'm at like 25% on that right now because I just don't see there being a full non-conference schedule at this point. I think uh, a conference-only schedule is probably more likely. And, and so uh, while my odds of there being a season are probably somewhere in the you know, 60 to 70% range. I just don't think it's particularly likely that uh, the non-conference part of a season is going to be played as scheduled. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sort of on the same page with you. I am probably in the 70 to 80% chance that, you know, the season happens this fall. I'm a little bit more optimistic, I, I would say. But like you said, I'm not, to, I'm not overwhelmingly positive about everything starting on time i don't know maybe i go 30 percent. i don't know but the end of scheduled question i think that my take on that is if this starts i think it's going to end because the the reason you 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 end it in my opinion is if things just spiral out of control in a way you don't foresee but i think if you start the season it's with an understanding of what might happen um so i think if it starts it ends as scheduled, whether that be a conference-only schedule, a full season, whatever it ends up being. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard. It's so hard to know, you know, regarding the end of the schedule because so much can change uh, between now and then. But yeah, I mean, I I do tend to think that you know, if it gets started and you know, there's not any major hitches along the way, that from that point forward. Uh, the rest of a season will probably be played a as scheduled um, 
from that point forward. Um, you know, is the college football playoff going to be held the same way it normally is? At this point, I don't know. I think the amount of money that there is uh, tied into the college football playoff, that's certainly something that uh, everyone involved is going to have every incentive to try to make happen. But I don't, you know, I, I, I'm certainly not putting the odds at 100% of that. You know, my odds on that, again, would probably be more of a 60 to 70% range at this point. Bring the juice, asks. If there's no college football season, who sticks around in that's for a year instead of leaving early for the NFL? And if there's no NFL season, will, I have any, will that have any effect on the 2021 NFL draft? I think the more interesting, I, I, I don't know, no more interesting is the way to put it, but the, the easier way to do this question is to ask who leaves. Um, if there was no college football season, if a worst came to worst, if there wasn't a college football season, who do we think would leave um, to go to the NFL? Dan... Justin Fields is clearly on that list, right? Yes, and Sean Wade's on that list, too. Yes. Yeah, Those are I, the guys I, for me. And and if I'm being honest, I don't really know that there's a third guy. I really think that those would be the two. And Wyatt maybe, Davis, I think, might be on that list. I think I, Wyatt Davis might. Like, Chris Olave, you can make a case for. But I think that the two guys who I think are a tier or two above everyone else and my sort of assuredness that they would leave are Justin Fields and, and Sean Wade. Yeah, I think those are the I think those are the two that I, I just I, I can't imagine them staying for an extra year at this point, yeah. um, just to play another season of college football. I mean, obviously, Sean made that decision last year, but I just don't see him putting off the NFL two years no. in a row when I think he's already in position to be a first round pick. So, uh, yeah, generally I agree with you there. I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, I think you know Wyatt Davis is a guy who's maybe in that Chris Olave, but ev- everyone else. You know, they're in a position where, you know, I mean, maybe a Josh Myers, but that would shock me, honestly. If, if Josh yeah, Myers left without playing another season at Ohio State, that would honestly shock me. Um, and I think everyone else who's not a senior is in a position where they need to come back. You know, they're, they're not in a position where they can go uh, leave, and, leave and go to the NFL right now. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it'd yeah, be a I mean, mess, too, if there's no college football season. Like, do you bring back all the seniors and also enroll the freshmen? You have 110 guys on your team. And on yeah, I mean, that's a good point because they most likely would get an exemption. So, you know, you, 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 even if you lose a couple of juniors and never play another game, yeah. you'd probably have some of your seniors back that you it'd be were a not total expecting. Mess. So hopefully that doesn't happen. Um, and in terms of no NFL season, will that have any impact on the 2021 NFL draft? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I again, I mean, I, I think, I also think, you know, I think there's going to be a college football season, but I also think, you know, the likelihood of a college football season being totally canceled is a lot more likely than the NFL season being totally canceled because I just can't see the NFL. I just think the NFL of all leagues is going to do everything it possibly can to have a season this year. Yep, I agree with that. And and sure, it'll have an impact, but if we're looking at it from an Ohio State perspective, I don't think it really would have much of an effect on it. No, pro- probably probably not. Um, next question is from Silver Sniper. This is a fascinating question, and shoot, we could have devoted a whole segment to it. But, you know, he asks, um, pretend you're participating in a Big Ten fantasy football draft and you're replacing the recently departed Ryan Day at Ohio State. Um, 
draft your top three Big Ten head coaches to take over um, at Ohio State. And he gives another stipulation, but to make it simple, we're just going to do that. And we're going to go back and forth. We're going to pick our top three Big Ten head coaches to take over. Dan, you can have the first pick. Who All of a sudden, Ryan Day says, hey, Dan Hope, I'm retiring. And you're like, all right, let me call Gene Smith. Hey, Gene, here's who you should go hire. Yeah, I mean, we talked about him last week, but, you know, to me, if I'm picking the head coach of Ohio State, I'm looking for upside. I'm looking for a guy who I think has the upside, uh, you know, to to win national championships. And it might be a risky pick, but I'm going to take P.J. Fleck. Yeah, I mean, that was my clear number one. And, in fact, it's so clear, like – I don't even there, – there's nobody else in the Big Ten who I would remotely feel confident taking over Ohio State. Not that I think, you know, Ryan Day should go retire and P.J. Fleck should <laughs> should be hired. But I think P.J. Fleck is a good coach. I am I am on the boat with P.J. Fleck rowing. And, you know, he would be my number one pick. But if I were to go – I mean, I really don't feel confident with anyone else. But like you, I just have to play the upside. I mean, if you're at Ohio State, I feel like that should be the play. And to me – like, I, I feel insane saying this, but I just feel like I have to at Scott Frost. That's, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard, it's hard with what he's done at Nebraska, but I yeah. get it. I get it because he's a younger coach. Um, the hard thing for me there is I just feel like if he can't succeed at Nebraska, uh, can he succeed elsewhere? Uh, yeah, no, I he, think that's an incredibly fair question, and this is why I don't feel confident in anybody. But given you know who he is, what he did at Central Florida, and the kind of offensive mind that I think he can be, I think I, I, I just I'm just taking the upside here, and it could be like when I took Jalen Gill in our draft last year, and then he ended up in the transfer portal. So I think that might be a terrible pick. Because if you're also considering Ohio State, you want to find someone who can be the CEO. And I think that if you're the CEO at Nebraska, that's a little bit translatable to what you're what you're doing at Ohio State. And obviously, he hasn't been a 100% success there. I'm just taking the upside, so I'm going to take him um, number two and feel extraordinarily um, uncom or not <laughs> not feel confident about it at all. All right, you get. I got the number one pick. We can do this snake format. So you get. You get pick number three too. Um, I'll take James Franklin. That's who I, I mean, would have taken yeah, next to. I mean, I. I don't know that James Franklin is Urban Meyer or Ryan Day, but he's 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 a good coach who's recruited pretty well there. Um, and it'd be fascinating to see what he could do at Ohio State. You know, when presumably he'd have, you know, better talent. Yeah, Franklin would have been number two on my board. I think I think James Franklin's a good a good coach. Uh, I think he could have uh, success at Ohio State. Um, so that, I I think that's the right pick there. Uh, for me, number four, uh, I'll, I'll go with Jeff Brom because I, I again upside here. Uh, you know, we, we we saw you know a couple years ago him start to get something going. Last year, a lot of injuries there. Uh, didn't have as good a year, but I, I think Jeff Brom's a good coach. I think he's someone. Uh, I've said it before. I think Purdue might be a sleeper for the upcoming season. Uh, I, I think he's a good coach. Another guy, offensive mind. Uh, you know, can can bring some sparks on that side of the ball. 
so, so that's the guy that I, I would take uh, as my my next pick, number four. Yeah, I think that I think that's a fair pick. Um, I don't know, Dan. I feel like I'm going full Cleveland Browns on this draft because I hate my Scott Frost at number two pick. But I also, if I had said, all right, James Franklin at two, that probably would have made sense. But then I still might have picked. I, I just I think that there's such a gap, honestly, in the Big Ten um, that yeah, even though Jeff Brom at four sounds a little bit high, I think it's totally reasonable at the same time. Number number five. This is probably the opposite of an upside pick. Wait, can I guess? Yeah. I think you're going to go Pat Fitzgerald. Yes, I am. I am going to go Pat Fitzgerald. Uh, like I said, it's probably not an upside pick, but I like Pat Fitzgerald. I mean, I think he's done a really good job at, at Northwestern, which is a program where I just don't think you're going to really have that that chance to really be a national title contender. But I, I think he's someone who could, who could succeed at a bigger school. I think he's a guy who's in the perfect place. It's his alma mater. I think you know, Northwestern is the, the perfect job for him. Uh, but he's a guy, you know, still a relatively younger guy. Um, you know, I, I, I like a lot of what he does as a coach. Uh, so, so he he he'd be he'd be my choice there. It's been there 15 years. That's it's crazy. Years. It is. It is. I, I he's still hope, not that old. No, he's 45. I hope he gets a shot somewhere else. Um, obviously, it doesn't seem like he's been someone who's actively been looking for a step up. But I would be fascinated to see what he could do with more talent because. I mean, when you're at Northwestern, you're obviously at a talent deficiency every single year. Um, my last pick, um, <laughs> if we're going to talk, you know, not having much upside and playing it safe, I'm going to go Paul Crist. Like, I don't, I don't know that I'm going to go win a national championship uh, if I go out and hire Paul Crist as an athletic director. But I feel like my team would be pretty good, pretty solid, and Wisconsin's recruiting better. Um, I don't know. I think I think that getting him at six right now is a, is a solid value. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I I agree. I mean, I think it's a it's a solid choice. It's just again, it's one of those just the upside is low, and you know we've talked about it before. I mean, I think Paul Christ is a good coach. I also think he's a fairly boring coach you know i think of what wisconsin's offenses have been and i don't think that's necessarily appealing uh to ohio yeah. state fans especially if what ryan day has done but yeah i think is your sixth pick of other big 10 coaches uh, it's a pretty good choice yeah i mean i'll take the guy who went 52 and 16 at wisconsin in the last three years i i i feel pretty confident about that one who else um were you even remotely considering even though I don't think there's even anyone else who we would ever bring up um, as the next Ohio State head coach unless Mel Tucker really turned it on at Michigan State. Yeah, that would have been the next guy on my list is Mel Tucker because, I mean, again, I think some ups, some upside there. I mean, he you know, he did a good job uh, at uh, Colorado. Actually has uh, an Ohio State background, so uh, you know, and an, an Ohio background, so so he's a guy uh, that that probably would have been my next pick uh, because uh, there are some ties there. And yeah. I mean, he, he was is, five and seven at Colorado, and before that, he his previous head coaching job came when he was an interim head coach with the Jaguars a decade ago. So I think that there's a heck of a lot of risk there, but 
Um, I think that that's reasonable. The other guy, I, I the other like a guy I, I sort of like right now is Tom Allen, but I don't get the idea that Tom Allen would be a great CEO at Ohio State. No, no, I, 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 I to me, Ohio State seems like it would be too big for Tom Allen. Yes, I agree with that. Um, Greg Schiano, did he? Did you even think about it? No, no. And three <laughs> three years ago, what? I probably would have. I mean, three years ago, he might have legitimately been a, a, a guy alongside Ryan Day who could have potentially been a successor to Urban Meyer. But then 2018 happened, and that was that. Yeah, I don't think Greg Schiano would be my be my answer. But I keep going back to the fact that I'm looking for a guy who could be comfortable being the CEO, running the program, um, and I do think Shiano has that in him. And I, I, you know, Rutgers, it's funny. Rutgers is that, that I, I don't know if anyone else out there thinks this, but, like, Rutgers is that program that I pay a little bit too much attention to. Like, I, I'm, I'm really interested in what he does there. I've been interested in how they can get out of the basement of the Big Ten for so long, and they haven't even remotely come close to doing so. So I think any if you even get in the you know the midsection of the Big Ten, that would be a stunning achievement at Rutgers. Yeah, no, it would be <laughs> the, the 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 bar of expectation at Rutgers is certainly uh, very very different than it is at Ohio State. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I and again, I think he's he's probably the perfect guy for Rutgers. I think he's probably exactly what Rutgers needed, uh, but I don't think he'd be the perfect guy for Ohio State. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, I guess uh, we we can move on to our next section because if we start talking about the possibility of someone like Lovey Smith being Ohio State's head coach, we might have gone a little bit too long, huh? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's just kind. Of, I mean. We couldn't mention him for obvious reasons, but it's just kind of funny that Jim Harbaugh is one of the highest-paid coaches in the country, and we're we're debating Mel Tucker versus Greg Schiano instead of him. Yeah, I mean, maybe I would have taken him over Paul Christ. Maybe I should have done that. Um, I just, I don't know. I mean, I feel like the results at Michigan should be fairly similar to the results at Ohio State, and I know... I mean, I know a lot of people think that Ohio State, in so many ways, is just a better all-around program. And I don't know. I think that you can do um, what Ohio State does at Michigan and and get Ohio State type results. And he hasn't done that, so he wouldn't be um, my pick. But you know, I think it's fair to to consider him. And and maybe I should have taken him six, if I'm being honest. And and. Kirk Ferentz probably wouldn't have been at my bottom bottom of my list two months ago, but he is now after yeah. all the stuff that's happened there uh, recently in regards to uh, race relations and accusations of racism within the program. Yeah, no, he was not on my big board. I will confirm that. Candy right, Graham, yeah, Candy ahead. Graham for Mongo asks. How does OSU truly hope to keep, it, keep a synthetic football field sur- surface sanitary? What about basketball, wrestling, track, etc.? This sounds that, like a question yeah. we need to ask uh, facilities people and write a story about. No, I thought the exact same thing because it, it is fair. Um, I have no idea. I really don't. I mean, if you look at the if you look at their plan that Ohio State released a little bit ago, what a month or so, month or so ago about their building plan and whatnot, they they they're cleaning a lot of things. Off the top of my head, I probably should look this up beforehand, but I didn't 
didn't see this question. It slipped in the middle of a couple else, a couple others that I was looking at. Um, I don't remember anything specifically about the field, so I think that that's that's a totally reasonable question. Yeah, I mean, I my question is, I don't even know. Like, is turf like could could the disease be passed yeah. through the turf? I have no idea. Uh, Wait, so Dan, it's a fascinating question. It's yeah. a good question. But I'm not qualified to answer it right now. I thought you were a doctor. That's disappointing. Nope. Gin and Juice. Dan, this one's for you. <laughs> if you guys were a tag team in the WWF during the late 80s, evidently when I was negative seven years old, uh, what would your names have been and what would your gimmicks be? I was also negative years old in the late 80s, and I'm also not a wrestling guy so uh this question probably should not be for me uh gin and juice always does a good job of asking uh these kind of questions but i i never seem to have a good answer for i don't know yeah. you, you got anything yeah. i'm trying to think like given my west virginia fandom i feel like i need something to do with with the mountaineer like i need the mountaineer to be my manager and I don't know necessarily what that makes me, but Dan, I guess you're not a wrestling fan. You 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 do know what wrestling managers are, right? Yes. Like they're the guys that go out there and, and yell and then inevitably get beat up. Right. I need I need the mountain I need the mountaineer to be my manager and I don't really know what that makes me. I just know I want that. I don't know what my name would be, I know what my gimmick would be, and that would be you know, I'm not going to talk. I'm going to let the Mountaineer do do the talking. He's going to have the musket with him at all times, and we're going to roll. We're going to go out and grab some grab some uh, some heavyweight gold. Yeah, I, <laughs> I just have no idea. Uh, I haven't really, really thought about this. Well, we're a tag uh, team, so you're with me, Dan. We've got the Mountaineer with us, and that's our gimmick. I guess, I guess, I guess my name can be D Unit. No one else will get that, but. <laughs> That's a really good name. I, that, was a, I mean, that was a that was a high school nickname of mine, uh, based on my fandom of Fifty Cent at the time. That wow, I respect that. I guess since if we're gonna do high school nicknames, I mean, people would just call me Haas because my last name is Hassel. And then when I was an offensive lineman, it was Big Haas, so I'll just be Big Haas. How about that? that D Unit and Big Haas. <laughs> That's all of a sudden. I thought we had nothing. We're <laughs> like it in Big Haas with the Mountaineer as our manager. I mean, <laughs> I mean, this is going pretty well. We just had to brainstorm a little bit. Yeah, D unit and Big Haas and a Mountaineer. That's that's that sounds pretty entertaining. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like we're in the middle of July and we got nothing to talk about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I would I would say so. Uh, who? John Glor, you you say this name, Dan. I I've seen I this name so many I've times. I've said it, I, John Glor, eighty two, eighty seven. So I'm going with me. that. He hasn't corrected us yet, so we'll stick <laughs> with that. Um, he did ask us two questions. One of the questions was about building a roster of Ohioans in the NFL, and. To be completely honest with you, John, that is not one we have time for tonight because that's one that would require a lot of thought uh, and and time, and we are running out of time uh, to do that one for tonight. But he did ask us a second question. Would you want an OSU indoor football stadium? No. Yeah, I mean, it would be nice, <laughs> 
but no, there's no chance that I would take that over what Ohio State has. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, I think I just that, cannot imagine that. Like that just yeah. seems so extremely weird. Like to imagine a dome where the shoe is. Yeah, as someone who grew up in Cleveland, do I want the Browns to have an indoor? Yeah, I do want the Browns to have that. But you know, when you think about Ohio State and the history that they have in that stadium, no, I don't. I don't need that. And, like, look, I'm not a winter guy at all. I'm not a snow guy or any of that. But when we talk about, you know, those possibility of a future expanded playoffs and uh, home games in an eight-team playoff, I am absolutely envisioning Ohio State hosting a game in the snow in December in the playoffs. That is absolutely what I'm envisioning. So, no, let's – I don't want any – I want to keep the shoe, keep the shoe as long as it's standing and, and keep it outdoors. We don't need a roof on the shoe. Yeah. All right. The last question from Daniel, which is undoubtedly the most important question of them all. <laughs> Favorite ice cream flavors, Dan, what is it? I'm a big chocolate guy. I've always been a big uh, chocolate guy ever since I was a kid. So uh, there's probably a lot of different variations of chocolate, but I, I mean, I'll just keep it simple. I'll just say chocolate. Wow. That is extremely simple. I thought you were going to go a little bit crazier than that, but. I mean, I respect the simplicity. He says, "Defend your, prepare to defend your choice." But I guess your choice is pretty simple. You just if like you want me to, go, if you want me to go more complex than just saying a, a, a general flavor. I mean, I, I'm a big uh, Jenny's ice cream fan, and uh, I think it's changed names over the years. It used to be called the Buckeye State ice cream. Okay, I think that one's amazing. Yes. I think it's just called like peanut butter with chocolate flex or something like that now. But that's excellent. Uh, that is that is excellent ice cream. So yeah, I don't know if how it's done these days or, or what it was done in the past, but I remember my first year at Ohio State, you had some sort of currency um, where you could spend some money at you know some of you know like convenience stores on campus, and I remember the Jenny's was extremely expensive so i got it once and i got that flavor and it was i mean that is a that is a tremendous answer i think that was one of the greatest pints of ice cream i've ever had jenny's is not cheap but it is worth it no uh i think you know my answer would probably be half-baked because it gets everything in there that i like you know it gets chocolate and vanilla ice cream gets cookie dough it gets brownie it gets yeah i mean it gets that is all i need (laughs) <laughs> I'm a big cookie dough person in general, and if I can throw a little bit of chocolate and a little bit of brownie in there, that's my go-to. And it's named after a Dave Chappelle movie, so you can't can't hate on that. I don't. And also, I'll mention like that if 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 we're gonna go very specific, I think the Tonight Dough from Ben and Jerry's that's another go-to. And that one I've never had. Okay, I recommend that. That's honestly, it's pretty similar to half baked. It just feels like it just takes it up a notch with everything in it. So if you like more stuff in it and you like more different types um, of that, then I would I would recommend it. But I will say, you seem you seem like you like it a little bit more simple than that. So uh, you might want to stick with the old the old chocolate or the Buckeye. No, I mean I, I and I, I I can I can rock with it having a lot of stuff in it too. I was just I don't know like. I don't know. I, I do. I do think. I do think you can go both ways on ice cream. Like I, I feel like I probably. I feel like when I was a kid, I used to be more into like the real crazy flavors, and I think now I tend to lean more toward the, the simpler flavors. Well, when I was a kid, I was just straight up cookie dough every single time. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I feel like I've advanced past that, and now I'm cookie dough and brownie. I respect that. I respect yes. that. All right. 
I guess we have devolved enough that we're talking about um, Jim Harbaugh taking over Ohio State and half-baked ice cream. So that must be time to call it a podcast. Yeah, but it, we, we covered a lot of different ground on this show, so I uh, hope you guys were able to, to keep up. But uh, it, it was fun. It was a fun conversation. Lots of good questions, so we, we always appreciate you guys. Uh, send it in your questions. Uh, we try to answer them. Uh, hope you enjoy hearing our answers and hope even those of you who didn't ask questions uh, enjoy hearing us discuss them. So uh, thanks again to everyone uh, who uh, participates in the show and, and listens in and we'll talk to you again next week.